Let me invite you, if you have a Bible, to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, whether your Bible's on your phone or your touchpad or an actual Bible. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, don't panic. The words will be on the screen in front of us. Uh, but I always find it helpful to have my own so I can kind of read along and make notes as I, as I go. We're continuing our study in Ephesians, which is entitled In Christ. That's the language that Paul uses over and over again. He talks about what it means for us to be in Christ. And last uh, week, we looked at the first three verses in chapter 2 as Paul interrupted his conversation to talk about our identity apart from Christ. So Paul was reminding the Ephesians and he's reminding us that there was a time where we were apart from Christ. It was a, a pre-conversion moment, so to speak. And what does our life look like uh, apart from Christ? And it, and it wasn't a, a, a pretty picture. Uh, the words that Paul used to describe us were uh, children of disobedience. We were, we were objects of, of God's wrath. We were uh, dead in our sins and our trespasses. We intentionally did things that, that God uh, never intended for us to do. And the things that he called us to, the, the life he called us to live, we, we never live up to that. And Paul's, I believe, his motive there is to help us understand the problem so that we can appreciate the solution. And so this morning, we're going to turn the page and we're going to say, okay, that's, that's who we are apart from Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? And how does that transaction actually take place? What do I do? I have, I have to work pretty hard to, to become a person who's in Christ. Well, actually, what we're going to discover is that humanity has an unsolvable problem. We cannot mend the relationship that we have broken with God. So think about a, a person who is living in a hopeless situation. Or think about a group of people that are, are in a scenario where they just can't figure it out and they are completely lost. I tried to think of that person or that group of people this, this week and I came up with this group. I came up with these seven individuals. <laughs> those of you that are older are smiling and, and kind of giggling and those of you that are like 25 or younger are going, I don't know what's going on right now. We would all, the older folks would just invite you to go watch reruns of a show called Gilligan's Island. This group of people has a multimillionaire. It has a guy who knows how to captain a ship. Could we go back to that picture, please? It, we have a guy who is a professor who could, who could, you know, they have a radio that works and they can't patch a boat. They can't get off the island. They are helpless and hopeless. Now, part of the reasoning for that was they were getting good TV ratings and the producer wanted the show to keep going. But if you ever want a picture of frustration, here it is. Every time you think they're going to get off the island, every time you think they got it figured out, something happened and it all blows up and they're stuck again. Maybe you've had that feeling in your life where you thought you had it figured out. You thought being a good person was enough. You thought if you were just maybe a little bit kinder than other folks, you're just a, a little bit nicer than other people, that that would really give you fulfillment. And certainly God would notice that and, and he would treat you better uh, than, than he's been treating you lately. And you've been disappointed and you've been hurt. Maybe you're a person who's even, you're here today because you're being nice to a friend or a spouse, but you've rejected the notion that there's any chance to have a relationship with God. The Bible understands that. In fact, the Bible, before I was ever born, wrote that down and pointed that out, that humanity has an unsolvable problem, but there is a remedy, there is a solution. Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to read verses 
4 through 9. I know, and for those of you that study the Bible often, I know that the passage actually goes in to verse 10 and ends with verse 10. We're going to pick that up later on in our study in a different context, in a different setting. This morning, we want to work specifically towards the notion of how does God present his remedy for our brokenness. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, hear the word of God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray. Father, uh, we pray this morning that your spirit and your word would penetrate our hearts and our minds. Uh, we have sung of your glory. We have sung uh, that we want to be wholly surrendered to you. Uh, we have acknowledged that you are our Savior and Lord. And Father, as those, those words of those song, songs touch our emotions, we pray now that your word would, would touch our intellect, our minds. Lord, how we think uh, dictates how we live. So, Father, I pray that you would show us your solution for our brokenness, that it would be understandable to us, that it would be something that uh, leads us to a deeper relationship with you, more love, more thankfulness for you, more humility in our lives. And Father, for any here this morning that are wrestling with this question of the problem of humanity and, and how it, it manifests itself in their own life, and they're apart from Christ. Lord, I pray for, for every person in this room that, that doesn't have faith in you. I thank you that they're here. I thank you that, that perhaps they're, they're wondering and asking questions. Lord, I pray that you would answer those questions in the person of the Lord Jesus. Lord, don't let me stand in the way of that. Please forgive my sin. Don't let me be an obstacle. We pray that you would come and you would teach us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I borrowed our sermon in a sentence this morning from uh, the late, great John Stott, who said this, a radical disease requires a radical remedy. He was thinking specifically of the human condition, of what it means to be apart from Christ. And he realized that that was a radical disease, that, that being apart from, from God, having broken a relationship with God, actually has a negative impact on every area of my life. It, it, it is a spiritual cancer that has spread to every part of my emotional, spiritual, and mental life. And I am irreparably broken. Therefore, I need a radical remedy. What Paul is going to show us in this passage is, through these three words, God's remedy for our problem. He's going to introduce us or maybe remind us this morning of God's mercy, of God's grace, and God's faith. Now you say, wait a minute, Tom, isn't it God's mercy and God's grace and my faith? And I would say, to a degree, yes, but your faith and my faith, what Paul is going to teach us this morning, are also actually a gift of God. That the faith that lives in my heart, if it's there today, lives there because God has given it. And therefore, it is all by him. And therefore, he deserves all glory and praise and worship. Well, let's begin uh, looking for this radical remedy with the notion of mercy. I believe what Paul wants us to see this morning is that God's mercy is motivated by his love. 
But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Now, if you were here last week, you, you noticed that, that Paul's conversation to this point in the first three verses were about us. They were man-centered. They were, they were dwelling with humanity apart from Christ. But notion, now note that as he begins to talk about the solution, he refocuses our attention. He takes us to take our eyes off of ourselves and put our eyes where? Put our eyes on God, the one who provides the solution. You cannot be a believer in the Lord Jesus and a fo- his follower and be self-obsessed. You, you can't look at yourself all the time and not look at Jesus and consider yourself a Christian. It isn't possible. The whole first step of becoming a Christian is understanding my own sin, but then looking to Christ for what he has done. That doesn't mean that there aren't times as a Christian when I can be selfish. I certainly can be. But, but to be self-obsessed means that I'm not going to look at anything else. And Paul rightly says, stop, move your eyes, look, look to God. And look at what he has done. And he shifts our focus in a way that is incredibly appropriate. We have to take our eyes off of our own sin and say, okay, who can help? If there's rescue from where is it going to come? But God, being rich in mercy. Could have said a lot of things there, but he chose that word mercy. God is wealthy in mercy. And you might ask the question as I did, well, how rich is God? Because I have a handful of sins that I I can't do anything about. I'm not a perfect guy. In fact, I started to think this week, I wonder how much sin, if I live to be about 85 years old, I wonder how many sins Jesus would have to pay for on the cross, just for me, not for you, not not for anybody else, just for me. And I started thinking about it in terms of if every time I, I committed a sin or a trespass, it was represented by a cup of water, how many cups of water would there be in my life? And so as I thought about this, I thought, you know, I could probably, if I lived to be about 85, I could probably fill up a neighborhood swimming pool with my sins, if every one of my sins were a cup of water, which led me to the thought of, I wonder how many cups of water are in a neighborhood swimming pool. This is where my mind goes. You, you, you pay me to think these thoughts. Think of it. This should be just very disturbing for all of you right now. And I discovered uh, that it takes 285,000 cups of water to fill up a neighborhood swimming pool that's 30 feet long and, and, and uh, is either 12 or 15 feet wide. And I thought 285,000 divided by 85 years and had to convert that into into days, that became 8.3 sins a day. I think that's a little low. (laughs) But let's just safely say that Tom Ricks, throughout the course of his life, has the capability because of his brokenness to fill up a swimming swimming pool full of, 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 of sins. How much mercy does God have? Does he have five swimming pools? Does, it, does he have, he only has one, but it's an Olympic size instead of my neighborhood. And so I'm okay, but some of the rest of y'all might be out <laughs> because that he's rich, but, but maybe not that rich. The word that Paul uses here for rich, the best way I can describe it, and the, way, the reason I'm giving you this illustration is it's like comparing a neighborhood swimming pool of my sins to the Pacific Ocean and the mercy of God. You simply cannot compare the two. So for those of us that despair sometimes because we think we can outsend God, Go back to the pool and then go stand and look at the Pacific Ocean. Which, by the way, if you want to know how many cups, I, I, I got obsessed with this. I couldn't stop myself. If you want to know how many cups it would take to fill up the Pacific Ocean, it's 234 quadrillion. That's 15 zeros if you're doing it in the short form. 234 quadrillion cups of mercy to replace 
my sin. I think God is up to the task. And Paul rightly reminds us that the depth of your sin is, is pretty deep, but it doesn't begin to compare with the mercy of God. God has more mercy than I can possibly imagine in my life. And this mercy is given not grudgingly. It's not giving in a way that, that is stingy. Say, I'll give you just enough, but it really makes me uncomfortable because I don't like you all that much. But look at what he says. God being rich in mercy did what? Well, he, he, he gave us forgiveness. He gave us grace. But look at that in-between part. Because of the great love with which he has loved us. God's delighted to give grace and mercy and forgiveness to sinners like you and me because he has a passionate love for the lost. John Stott, I'm going back to John Stott one more time again this morning. John Stott said this, in raising Christ and raising Jesus from the dead, God demonstrated the immeasurable greatness of his power. And that's, he's referring to chapter one, verses 19 and 20. You go back and read those verses. We've already studied them. And he talks about Jesus being raised by the immeasurable greatness of God's power. But in raising and exalting us, us lost, broken sinners, swimming pool full of sins, he displayed also the immeasurable greatness of his grace and will continue to do so for all of eternity. The Pacific Ocean isn't even a big enough comparison. All the water in the world isn't a big enough comparison because God loves lost sinners like you and me. His mercy is motivated by love. But secondly, he replaces wrath with grace. We must acknowledge, and this is what the whole sermon was on last week, we must acknowledge our brokenness. We must acknowledge our rebellion. We must acknowledge uh, that we need mercy, that we need grace. And so I want to take you back to a compressed version of the first three verses where Paul talks about our condition apart from Christ, dead in trespasses and sins. Remember, trespass is something you do on purpose. You know you shouldn't, and you do it anyway. And a sin is you know you should do something good. You should help somebody, and you just leave it undone. Because of that, we're spiritually dead. That's the way we used to walk when we followed the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We all followed the passions of our flesh and the desires of our minds. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In other words, God is right to judge and to find guilty. God finding me guilty and God holding me accountable for my sins does not make God a bad God. It makes him a perfectly just God. God would be an evil God if he didn't hold me accountable for my sin. If he, if he said, Tom, I'm just going to ignore the swimming pool, all the people you've hurt all of your life, all the mean things you've said, all the, all the things you've thought that were completely inappropriate, all the actions in your life that harmed other people, I'm just going to ignore those. That would be an evil God to do such a thing. I wouldn't want to believe in a God like that. God is perfectly just in finding us guilty, and his wrath is the correct response. But God is rich in mercy, and he replaces that wrath or he satisfies that wrath, is another way to say it, with his grace. Look, go, go with me for a second back to chapter 1, verse 7. In him, in, in Jesus Christ, we have redemption. Somebody paid for our sins. How did he pay? Through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us. What is Paul talking about there? He's talking about the cross of Christ. He's talking about Jesus taking his perfection and trading his perfection for my imperfection and then being the object of God's wrath because of that imperfection. Jesus is on the cross and he's crying out. He's screaming at the top of his lungs, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's experiencing hell and I sent him there. And you sent him there. But he went there intentionally so that we could have grace. Grace is not 
God ignoring your sin. Grace is not God ignoring all the junk in your life that has hurt people and the stuff in my life that has, that has hurt people. He's pouring his wrath out on Jesus so that he could replace that wrath, so that wrath will be satisfied and you and I could have grace. Why? Because he loves us. And so Paul reminds us this is an act of grace. Verse 5, it's by grace. We made us alive together by Christ. By grace you have been saved. Again in verse 8, for by grace you have been saved. Uh, My teachers in school always repeated things when they figured I wasn't getting it. (laughs) They would keep coming back to it. They thought somebody in the class maybe wasn't quite there. My economics professor in college said repetition is the mother of studies. And he was looking at me when he said that. And I'm not sure why, except I wasn't quite getting the whole thing. I did okay in economics, but he repeated it. Why does Paul repeat this here? Because we're so quick to turn our back on grace. We're so, we're so quick to either despair and say it's not possible, God can't save me, or we're quick to want to take credit for it. And so God repeats this. We have to remember that what God is doing is an act of his grace. Philip Yancey, who wrote a, a book, has written a whole bunch of books, but he wrote a book called What's So Amazing About Grace? And it definitely is a worthy read. If you haven't ever read Yancey, you, you, you probably ought to. Uh, at some point. But Yancey tells a story about taking a truck back to the Ryder truck rental uh, out in LA when he had to move some stuff, and he was late. He was about 50 minutes late. He'd missed the deadline of bringing the truck back. I think he said he's supposed to be back at noon. It's about 10 to 1. Pulls in the parking lot, goes in and hands the keys, and he said, I'm not going to try to, you know, make up an excuse or whatever. He, just, he puts the keys down the counter. He looks at the young woman. He says, I'm late. How much do I owe you? And she looks at the contract. She takes the keys. She says, you don't owe me anything. He goes, what do you mean? I'm like 50, 55 minutes late. She goes, we have an hour grace period, so you don't owe me anything. And so Yancey, who, who, who is kind of nutty like me, looking for an opportunity, any place he can find to talk to somebody about Jesus, says, well, that's really cool. What is grace? And he said, she looked back at him and she said, I don't know, but I think it means you don't have to pay. <laughs> she has a better understanding of grace than, than I do sometimes. Grace means you don't have to pay because God has not only spared us, but he's paid the price in order for us to be saved. But also notice that this grace is is beyond just salvation. Look at verses five through seven. There's there's more. This is like that commercial. How much would you pay? But wait, there's more. Look at what else happens here. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God did what? Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Not only have we been saved, not only been spared from the judgment of God, not only has God paid that price for us, but he's also given us a new outcome. He has made us alive. Remember, you were spiritually dead. But God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. But not just for this age, but he's also raised us up. That means that that there's something more that's coming. What else is coming? He seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. Where's Jesus seated in the heavenly places? He's seated on a throne. We get to enjoy fellowship with Christ for all of eternity, for the coming ages. Why? Because he's been kind to us in Christ Jesus. That language of of made alive and raised up and and seated ought to be ringing, a a little bell ought to be going off in your head. A little bit if you were born and raised in a a traditional church that recited the creeds. Uh, We don't recite the creeds as often as we probably should at Green Tree, and that's my fault. I should do a better job of that. But but every so often we, we recite together the Apostles' Creed. 
And now you should be thinking, that's right, that's where I heard it. Speaking of Jesus, right? On the third day, he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. That's language about Jesus and about his glory and about his majesty. And what Paul says here is, and we get to share. That's grace. That's mercy. That's kindness that replaces or that satisfies the wrath of God. But there's one other word that we cannot miss this morning. Not only does God share a mercy that's motivated by his love and a grace because God's wrath has been satisfied, but he gives us faith to believe. Look at verses 8 and 9. Maybe the most famous verses in in Ephesians. Uh, They're very familiar to lots of folks. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. What is faith? Faith is the ability to receive mercy's gift. Faith is the longing to make it my own. Faith is the ability to trust that it is enough. And when you read that, that sentence, you're tempted to say, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of your doing. It is a gift of God. And to take that it and take it back to grace. But that's actually not how the sentence is structured in the Greek. This is one time when my Greek study actually pays off. It actually refers back to faith. That grace is God's gift. Obviously, it's his attitude towards us. But this is not of your own doing. What's not of my doing? My faith is not of my own doing. Long before I chose to believe in Christ, Christ chose to offer his love and his mercy and his kindness to me. Or as Paul said in chapter one, we were predestined before the foundation of the world in the mind of God to experience this grace. God's had a plan all along and he, and he knows the only way that he can make this plan ultimately work is to give me faith. And so if you're here this morning, you're a believer in Jesus your faith is a gift from God. You didn't meet God halfway. What, what we brought to the equation was sin and death and rebellion. And what God did is he took that, that spiritual corpse and he made it alive in Christ. He has done everything. And so Paul uh, hammers this just a bit, uh, first of all, through the, through the negative, right? He says a couple things. It's not your own doing. It's not a result of works. And I, and I think one of the reasons he does this is because we either want to help we're like, you know, we're good Midwesterners. We ought to pitch in some way. You know, God, let us, let us do our part. And the Lord says, you don't understand. You, you know, you, you self-righteous Midwesterners, you can't do anything. I'm going to do it for you. I'm going to give you the faith to believe in me. Because if we, if we can contribute, then we can do what? Then we can take credit, which is what, if we're honest, that's what we're really after. If we really are honest in the depth of our hearts, we want to look better. We want to be able to take credit. Do you all know that there is a famous author in the United States whose name is Tom Ricks? Maybe you've read some of it. It's not me. I, I, I write notes every once in a while. Uh, there's an author, Thomas Edwin Ricks, and he's actually a military historian, which is, I'm a, I love, I'm an amateur military historian. I love uh, looking at his books. Well, I was in a bookstore in Charleston back in 2000, and I think it was seven, and Katie was a student there. And I'm going through the bookstore, and he had just come out with a book in 2006, and it was called Fiasco, and it was about the, the war in Iraq. And it says right there on the Thomas, Thomas Ricks. And so I was standing next to this, and it's got a bunch of them piled up, and then, you know, like three or four on display. And this young lady walks by, who's clearly a college student who's working there. And I said, uh, excuse me. She said, yes, how can I help you? I said, well, I'm here for the book signing. She looked at me. She said, excuse me? And I said, I'm Tom Ricks. 
That was a true statement. And she looked at me, and I finally I picked up the book. I said, Tom, I'm here for the book signing. At which point she said, and I did all this with a straight face. At which point she said, let me go get the manager. <laughs> and now I'm thinking a manager might actually call the police, so let's take the conversation in a different direction. So I said, no, 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 you don't, get, you don't need to call the manager. I took my, my driver's license. I said, my name really is Tom Ricks, but I'm not. I'm not that Tom Ricks. And I turned, there was a picture of him. I'm like, yes, yeah, we, don't, we don't look too much alike. But for a split second there, it was kind of fun to be Tom Ricks, <laughs> to be that Tom Ricks. I, you know, kind of like, ooh, I'm standing with an author. That kind of felt good. How, how often do I want to say, Lord, look at what I, what I brought to the equation. And I can't look at me and look at Jesus at the same time. I got to pick one or the other. And God's mercy says, look at me. Focus on me. And so Paul puts it in the negative, Tom, it's not your doing, it's not your effort. Rest in what God has done for you. But then he puts it in the positive. It is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. God's intentionally giving us a gift, a gift of grace, a gift of faith that results in our salvation, not only in this world, but in the world to come. Friends, humanity has a radical problem. And I would argue that Scripture teaches very clearly that God has offered a radical remedy. The only way off this island of sin and death and wrath, we're like, we're like the castaways. We can't, we can't patch the boat. We can't do what ultimately needs to be done to bring salvation. But God calls us this morning to believe, to take the gift of faith that he gives and trust in him for our new life. Trust that, that we are raised and we are seated with Christ and that that salvation is ours forever. What a remarkable story. What a remarkable remedy. I've been praying about this sermon all week because I, I always worry that, you know, maybe there's just somebody that, that doesn't quite connect the dots. And so I always look for a variety of different ways Tell a story. And to me, this is the most important message in all of the Bible, the message of, of our brokenness and God's salvation. There's a lot that comes after that. Many of you have been disciples for a long time, and you know there's a life of discipleship and following Jesus. But this, this first step of salvation is so fundamentally crucial. So somebody introduced me about three weeks ago to a, a poet and, a, and, a, and an artist. Uh, he's also a pastor and a musician, uh, and his stage name is Propaganda. And somebody introduced me to a, about a four, four and a half minute video that he did uh, that I just took about 23 minutes to lay out for you. And I decided I want us to watch it this morning because it's just one more way to tell this incredible story of God's grace and mercy that he gives to us. So if you would, uh, we're going we're gonna to kind of end our time this morning. Uh, typically, we sing a little bit this morning. We're going to end by, uh, by watching this uh, story told again, and then I'll come back up and pray. It's the full story of life crushed into four minutes. The entirety of humanity in the palm of your hand crushed into one sentence. Listen, it's intense, right? God, our sins, paying everyone life. The greatest story ever told that's hardly ever told, God. Yes, God, the maker and giver of life. And by life, I mean any and all manner and substance, seen and unseen, what can and can be touched. Thoughts, image, emotions, love, atoms, and oceans, God. All of it is handiwork, one of which is masterpiece, made so uniquely that angels look curiously. 
the one thing in creation that was made with his imagery, the concept so cold. It's the reason I stay bold, how God breathed in a man and he became a living soul. Formed with the intent of being infinitely, intimately fond. Creator and creation held an eternal bond. And it was placed in perfect paradise till something went wrong. A species got deceived and started lusting for his job and odd list of complaints. As if the system ain't working and used that same breath he graciously gave us to curse him. And that sin seed spread through our soul's genome. And by nature of your nature, your species, you participated in the mutiny, our, yes, our sins. It's nature inherited, black in the human heart. It was over before it started. Deceived from day one and led away by our own lust. There's not a religion in the world that doesn't agree that something's wrong with us. The question is, what is it and how do we fix it? Are we eternally separated from a God that may or may not have existed? But that's another subject. Let's keep grinding. Besides trying to prove God is like defending a lion, homie. It'll need your help. Just unlock the cage. Let's move on on how our debt can be paid. Short and sweet. The problem is sin. Yes, sin. It's a cancer. An asthma, choking out our life force, forcing separation from a perfect and holy God. And the only way to get back is to get back to perfection, but silly us. Trying to pass the course of life without referring to a syllabus. This is us. Keep up your good deeds. Chant, pray, meditate. But all of that, of course, is spraying cologne on a corpse. Or you could choose to ignore it as if something don't stink. It's like stepping in dog poop and refusing to wipe your shoe, but all of that ends with how good is good enough. Take your silly list of good deeds and line them up against perfection, good luck. That's life past your pay grade. The cost of your soul, you ain't got a big enough piggy bank, but you could give it a shot. But I suggest you throw away the list, because even your good acts are an extension of your selfishness. But here's where it gets interesting. I hope you're closely listening. Please don't get it twisted. It's what makes our faith unique. Here's what God says as part A of the gospel. You can't fix yourself. Quit trying. It's impossible. Sin brings death. Give God his breath back. You owe him. Eternally separated, and the only way to fix it is someone die in your place. And that someone gotta be perfect, or the payment ain't permanent. So if and when you find a perfect person, get him or her to willingly trade their perfection for your sin and death in. Clearly, since the only one that can meet God's criteria is God, God sent himself as Jesus to pay the cost for us. His righteousness. His death functions as payment. Yes, payment. Wrote a check with his life, but at the resurrection we all cheered because that means the check cleared. Pierced feet, pierced hands, blood-stained son of man, fullness, forgiveness, free passage into the promised land. That same breath that God breathed into us, God gave up to redeem us. And anyone and everyone, and by everyone I mean everyone, who puts their faith and trust in Him, and Him alone can stand in full confidence of God's forgiveness. And here's what the promise is, that you are guaranteed full access to return to perfect unity by simply believing in Christ and Christ alone. You are receiving life. Yes, life. This is the gospel.
God our sins, paying everyone life. No, I'm never ever going to try that. That is just beautiful. Beautiful. Uh, Let's pray. I'm going to give you a moment for silent prayer. Uh, If you're a believer, two things. Give thanks to God because you know you're not here because you did it. And secondly, ask him to use you to share this message with others. If you haven't ever put your faith in Christ, let me invite you to call out to him. Confess your sin. And also confess that you now want a faith born in you that would believe in him. Lord Jesus, we bless your name this morning for being the one who, uh, as a storyteller told us, you you wrote the check with with your own blood, with your life given on the cross. You were and are the manifestation of God's grace and mercy to us. And you even uh, sent your Holy Spirit so that your word would become alive within us and we could have a faith to believe. Father, I pray for uh, Green Tree Community Church gathered here collectively as well as each of us individually who are your disciples, uh, that we would live in that grace, that we would not try to add to it, nor would we despair when we fall short of it, but we would rest in that grace, and that grace would move in our hearts to create a thankfulness, to create a humility, and to create a boldness to share that message with others. Father, I pray for uh, our individual witness as we're in classrooms and offices and grocery stores and uh, all different, different places in this next week, that as we live in this grace, you would use us to draw uh, that attention to you, not to us, but that you would use uh, your grace in our lives to witness to others. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to gather as a fellowship this morning. And we pray that that our unity, our friendship, would be centered on that gospel, be centered on your grace and your mercy. And again, Father, for any who are in this room that don't know you, Lord, please don't let them leave in that condition. Please stir in their hearts uh, that they would cry out to you in faith and receive the new life that is freely theirs. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, we pray in his name. Amen.